Um, thank you. First off, thank you for inviting us over to do this presentation. Uh, it's a real pleasure to see that you guys are here in the summer and that you're, you're actively engaged in uh, your own professional development. Second, uh, my two colleagues who are here said, you know, you've got slides, you're making us look bad. That was not my intention. Uh, I'm that neurotic, that's why I have slides. It's to remember everything that I have uh, to say to you guys. And I have, I've got some pretty pictures in there. Um, so first off, well, who am I, right? Uh, I'm an assistant professor of public policy and economics. This is my sixth year, so I finished my PhD in applied, formerly agricultural economics from Cornell in 2006. I joined the Sanford faculty uh, a few months after defending in June of 2006. So in September, I started here. My research is broadly concerned with questions of food security. More specifically, I use the tools of applied micro um, to look at questions of agricultural development and uh, increasingly of food policy. There are some other things I do uh, here and there in the meantime, but mostly that's what I've been doing for the past six years and more, given that you know there's five years of PhD before that. Um, so I titled the talk, How Should a PhD Student Be? Because this novel, How Should a Person Be? by uh, Sheila Hedy just came out. Uh, I've been meaning to read it, and I thought it was kind of a nifty title, just kind of awkward enough to, to kind of grab the reader's attention. What do you need to do and when during your PhD? Um, here it's really helpful to use backward induction. Uh, ideally, you'll be on the market in year five. In the fall of year five, that's when you go on the market. By then, my view is that you really, really want a published article in a peer-reviewed journal. The model candidate on the market has zero publications. So if you have one, that immediately puts you in a pile that's you know, far ahead of everybody else. Um, there's also the fact that if you're doing a PhD in public policy, there are people in disciplinary departments who are disciplinary snobs, who are going to say, oh, that person hasn't done a PhD in economics, therefore, or oh, that person hasn't done a PhD in poli-sci, therefore. If you have the credit of having a publication in a peer-reviewed journal that already places you ahead of everybody else, and it, it basically shows those people that you can walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, here, anything that's conditionally accepted so, or, or beyond, so accepted, forthcoming, or published works, right? So here, a bird in hand, a bird in the bush is the same thing. You have a paper where you have a letter from the editor that says, I'm, I'm glad to accept this, or this is, you know, if you switch the comma here and there, uh, this is going to be accepted. Anything works as long as you have, you know, that line in your CV that says, please conditionally accept it. In the best case scenario, from inception to publication, or from inception to acceptance, it will take you about two years. Now, if you're, if you're gunning for journals like the British Medical Journal or Science or Nature, that's not true, right? So those guys review extremely fast. But at the same time, uh, their rejection rates are you know, hovering about 95%. And so it's a very risky gamble to say, I will, I will have a Science or Nature paper by you know, year three. You can try it, and I certainly encourage you guys to do it, but in, in the more traditional disciplines, and that's certainly true of economics, uh, from inception to publication, it'll take at least two years. This means that, so backward inducting, right, this means that you need to submit that paper no later than the fall of year three. Um, and if this is your first paper, this means you need to think about research ideas at least a year earlier in the fall of year two, because there's a lot of stumbling and kind of... of uh, there's, there's stumbling blocks here and there, and you need to make mistakes before you get to that, you know, to, to that working paper that you can circulate. Um, 
I was lucky to know exactly what topic I wanted to write my dissertation on before I started grad school. So that kind of that kind of underpins a lot, or that underpins a lot of what I'm going to tell you today. Um, so what did I do during my, my own PhD? So the first year, the big hurdle at Cornell was the micro queue. Uh, a four-hour exam on all of Moscow L that had to be taken three weeks after spring finals and had a 50% passing rate. You had three tries, um, and if you didn't pass on the third time, they might give you kind of a grace for it. Uh, but then you were out. Um, and so the qualifier was the big thing. I had always struggled with micro, and by struggle I mean, you know, I hadn't, I, I'd always done better in econometrics and, and macro. Uh, so I used my fear to motivate myself, right? So whatever works. I had average grades throughout the year, but I passed the micro queue the first time around. That's really what mattered was, you know, we got to get over this hurdle. So I really kind of threw all of my effort in there. And since I knew what I wanted to do for my dissertation, I kept my eye on the ball, always seeing this as a rite of passage, but all at the same time thinking about my research ideas. So we, we would be going over classes. I knew I wanted to work on, you know, uh, shared tendency, which is all about principal agent models. And so I paid extra attention and did extra readings when we covered those chapters in our micro courses. So to reward myself for passing the qualifier, I then spent three weeks playing video games, uh, finishing in one, one sitting, I mean, not one sitting, but in one kind of continuous block of time, Fallout 1 and 2. So that's before your time, 3 and 4 are out now. Uh, and actually, that's not the only thing I did. So I would actually go to the gym around 4, and that would go out at night. But from, from about 8 to 5, from about 8 to 4 p.m., that's what I did. And then I started reviewing the literature. So I knew what topic I wanted to look at, and I started looking at, well, what's been written, right? So I know that Stiglitz has written something on this, and uh, that Adam Smith had looked at the topic, but, you know, what really, wanting to do some empirical work, what's been said on this? So I started reviewing the literature and scribbling some thoughts to make sure that, you know, I at least knew what I was talking about when I, you know, spoke to faculty and said, oh, I want to work on this. So my second year was spent taking every development and econometrics class in sight. Uh, and I also started working on the theoretical part of my dissertation, which was really going to become my first essay. So my job market paper was a synthesis of the first two essays. I needed to have some theory in there. I needed to have some empirics to show all the things that I could do. Um, and so theory, first essay, empirics, second essay. I submitted a rather embarrassing version of that theory piece for publication. It was roundly rejected and it fully deserved it. You can still find it on Google Scholar. Um, if, you, if, if you're the type of person who learns from looking at other people's mistakes and successes, I encourage you to check it out. It's very, very different from, from the finished product. Um, I took this as a signal that I needed to considerably up my game and improve my first essay. In the second summer, I spent the whole summer applying for funding for field work. So I knew I wanted to do empirical work and the specific question I was looking at was not something you could answer using you know, second-hand data that you would download off of the internet. There are great papers that can be written using public sources, uh, but for this one question, I needed to collect my own data, and I just thought it was kind of a nice thing to do for yourself during your grad school years. Luckily, the SSRC, Social Science Research Council, had small grants for people looking at risk and uncertainty. I got $5,000 from them. Uh, but more importantly, I also spent a whole month preparing an NSF doctoral dissertation improvement grant. Those are ideal for summer because the deadline is August 15th. Uh, you have a lot more time, and so you can basically toss that thing around and ask faculty, do you think this is well written? Do you think this is 
This covers the big C's. And more importantly, they're open to foreigners, right? So that was really important for me because I'm not an American citizen. About half of the funding sources are close to me because of that reason. And so getting that was really nice. Moreover, by getting a PhD in public policy, you guys are also looking at jobs where grantsmanship is rewarded. So in schools of public health, for example, a major component of your time will be raising your own salary, your own soft money. Uh, and so knowing how to write grants, having, having like a decent prestigious grant in your CV when you hit the market is a really nice thing to have. So I would encourage you, all of you guys to look at those and assess uh, doctoral dissertation improvement grants. You have to apply with a faculty member but really, I mean, you write the thing, the faculty member just kind of signs off on it, gives you comments, usually your advisor. That allowed me to collect my own data and to answer my research question. So my third year was spent taking that one development class I had not yet taken and getting ready for field work. I also already for my advisor working on a data set about livestock marketing in East Africa. So I remember distinctly going for lunch with a friend of mine and she said, chuckling, she said, you're going to work on livestock. Uh, and I said, yes, I'm going to work on livestock because that's what I've been assigned to do as an RA. Little did I know that this was going to lead to my first publication and also my most cited paper. So I left for Madagascar in January of that year. So this is the middle of year three, spent eight months collecting data. I had a lot of downtime when I got there. So I worked on that paper with my advisor and I also read all that I could find. Uh, I would print a bunch of stuff and read all those papers that were about contract theory but we're not directly kind of about sharecropping or about share tenancy. Just because I figured it's good to know all the literature surrounding your topic. In year four, I worked on the second essay in my dissertation as the empirical portion of this, of this sharecropping stuff, uh, which really tested those theories I had been developing using my own microdata. I also worked some more on that paper with my advisor. By then I had developed a new estimator to study the problem. Uh, we submitted the paper to the Journal of Applied Econometrics. In the fall, it got rejected. We then submitted it in March to the top journal in my field, the American Journal of Ag Econ. And we got really lucky because we got a revise and resubmit pretty quickly. So I was looking at the manuscript before I came here, and it said received March 2005, accepted September 2005. So, so I had failed to realize at the time how fast that was. Um, I spent most of the summer working on the requested revisions and on my dissertation. By late summer, the paper was conditionally accepted. By September, it was forthcoming. Um, so right in time for the job market. So I, I consider myself extremely lucky for that reason. Because very little of what I'm telling you is, was actually planned in sort of this cold, calculating, rational way that I outlined at the beginning. It was, I mean, a lot of it was just by chance. Year five, I can honestly say that I didn't do anything as far as research goes between September and February. Being on the job market is a full-time job. Um, I was always reasonably good at presenting. My advisor was running a workshop where you had to present once a semester and get comments. Uh, so I didn't really worry about presentation skills. I just thought, you know, I, I can wing this. Uh, but the job market, as I said, is a full-time job. I submitted 72 applications, right? So that, those are about one-inch thick packets. Uh, applied to every faculty position I could find abroad here. Um, in teaching colleges, in research universities, uh, all those AF positions, so any field positions in the JOE, I thought, well, you know, this is better odds than the lottery ticket, so you might as well apply. Uh, I recall like sending an application to Harvard Business School strategy position and thinking, you know what, I'm 
surely not going to get this. But at the same time, if there's this like 1% chance that they're going to look at the application and say, this is pretty interesting. Uh, again, I said that was neurotic, right? So 72 applications is a lot. It's, it's overdoing it. Uh, I don't know what other, what my colleagues' strategies were. In the end, I had about 21 first round interviews, five finals, and three offers. Uh, and so, like, the attrition is really high, right? So that's why you need to kind of blast out those applications when you go on the market. And I wasn't looking at, at, uh, at kind of private sector or industry. So I would say the, the least academic key job I applied for was a position at IFPRI uh, in Washington, which is still a research outfit. Yeah. Okay, so of those 21, did you think those 21 were the 21 logical ones to pick you, or did some of these... Long shots actually come through. Just curious. Do you? I I thought this one was a long shot. I thought the interview with Bob Conrad and Chris Simmons I had uh, somewhere in Cambridge, somewhere far away from where the actual I mean, I mean, the ASSA took place. Seventy-two to twenty-one, Joe. Okay. Sorry. And I said the seventy-two to twenty-one. Yeah. Um, did you like were the twenty-one that actually? Calling for interviews, the 21 that you thought were the best chance of calling for interviews? Or, like, are you glad you put all seven? Besides the neurotic, no, I'm glad, I'm glad I submitted all 72 because I, I did not think I was going to get. So, here, for example, I wasn't sure I was going to get um, mm -hmm. an interview, and I'm glad I did you know, apply for this position. Okay. Uh, I certainly wanted it, right? but I didn't <laughs> think I was going to get an interview. Uh, but by and large, I think you're about right that you know, what came through was not the most surprising uh, of um, okay, I'm almost done. <clears throat> Once I accepted Sanford's offer, after the requisite night out, it was time to think about my third essay. Uh, luckily, I'd been thinking about that one for a few years. So it had been one of the things that my advisor had told me was never discount the thinking stage, right? So while you walk to work or things like that, you do a lot of thinking, and not all of it is about you know what you're going to eat for dinner or you know, when are you going to get together with your friend. And so to have these things in the back of your mind, your mind keeps working on those things. And if you think about a paper long enough, you'll sit down and it'll not come right out, but, it, but it'll be almost fully formed, and then you can just kind of polish it. Um, so after, after I wrote that, after I sent my, uh, all of my essays to my committee, after incorporating their comments, I defended, um, I think it was June 11th or something, with 104 degree fever that day. And then we moved to Durham a couple of weeks later. Um, and that's essentially how it went for me. I don't know if you guys have any specific questions. Yes? Um, I had a question just kind of about um, the transition from writing a paper, which you said deserved to be rejected, to one which could be accepted for publication. Yeah. Kind of what it was you weren't thinking about in that first one that you had not completely polished or that wasn't publishable quality. Uh, don't take shortcuts. If the literature does, say it was a principal agent paper. If the literature does things a certain way, don't think you can take a shortcut, even if it seems logical to you. Sometimes, I mean, this is going to sound incredibly silly, but sometimes you have to jump through specific hoops to just please reviewers and make it look like, you know, like it's supposed to look. Uh, what I ended up coming up with in my, in my theoretical essay, and it's in the appendix of my online economics paper, you can look it up, is does the same. It's got the same conclusions as that awful paper. Um, but it, it just looks a lot more like what you would find in, say, you know, Ben Holmstrom's papers on contract. Thank you.
So I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, mirrors an interesting way to mark some of my witness because this is actually the first time I've gotten my colleagues a little story, too. Uh, so um, I'm Nick Carnes, by the way, for those of you who I haven't met. Uh, uh, my field is politics or political science. Uh, and my research focuses on why there are so few working class people in public offices and how that affects public policy. Um, I earned my PhD all the way back in August of 2012. Uh, so, uh, so this is all really fresh in my mind. Um, and instead of using backwards induction, I'm just going to sort of lay out the, so I'm an empiricist, so I'm just going to lay out the empirical evidence which supports the, the larger theoretical model. Um, so, so I did sort of the kind of exercise Mark described pretty early in my academic career. I said, what do I need to do? I did exactly what you're doing. I said, you know, what do I need to do in each year in order to get where I want to be, which is, you know, ready for the job market the fall of my fifth year. Um, and I got to, you know, like Mark, there was a lot of luck involved, but I got to basically exactly the same conclusions Mark did. Um, so in year one, I took classes. Um, I did RA work for one of my one, uh, professor who later became my advisor. We actually just published that paper. Uh, uh, we just got accepted last month in this top three political science journal. So, so writing papers can take sometimes longer than two years, uh, the best case scenario. Um, and that first year, I tried out lots of new projects. So every paper I wrote for every class, I looked at as a test run for my perspectives. You know, do I like this topic? Is it interesting? Am I naturally good at it? Is there, you know, sort of an opportunity for new research here? Every paper I was thinking about, you know, in the long run, this has to be something I can research for a long time and write uh, sort of a whole book about. Um, and I tried a bunch of stuff that didn't work. Uh, immigration, there, there's already lots of really good research on immigration policy. Religion, there's not a lot of good research. I just couldn't get excited about it the way I could about social class inequality, which I eventually got to. But that first year, I sort of gave myself permission to just try everything under the sun. And I carried that over into my second year. So um, the summer after my first year, I just um, did RA work for another professor, when I worked for Putnam. Um, and I did sort of some empirical work on a new project, which would become my second year paper. Um, this made my classmates really hate me because they all waited until like a month before the second year paper was due to start working on it. Um, and then got really mad when mine was already done and I you know, just needed to typeset it basically. Um, but I started the work for my second year paper the summer of my first year. Year two, kind of the same thing. I took classes, I did RA work, um, I kept trying new projects. My second year paper was a failure, like a null finding. But it was the last thing I did before the project I that became my dissertation. So it got me, you know, finally to the point where I had a good topic. Um, but it took me like seven research papers for classes and a second year paper, which is basically a master's thesis uh, in my program. Uh, it took me all that time of just, just, you know, trying something and it not working out to finally get to sort of a topic that would work for a dissertation. Um, I also took general exams, and this is where Mark's and my stories are kind of similar. Um, more, the thing that Mark mentioned that I think is really smart is that general exams are a hurdle, and you have to clear that hurdle, and it's right to think of them that way as something that just the sooner you can get, get it over with, the better. Um, 
There was a school of thought in my graduate program that said that a person should do the minimum amount of work necessary to pass, which I didn't buy because I thought, you know, this isn't purely a waste of time. General exams are actually a really good learning experience because you're reading lots of stuff that is valuable. So I actually put a lot of work into my general exams and learned a lot of stuff. And now I have, you know, uh, I, you know, I can easily recall what I learned then because, you know, I've been using that knowledge ever since. Um, and also, uh, and this is sort of where the logic of do the minimum necessary kind of breaks down, faculty talk. And the ones who have to grade general exams when they're all really terrible, even though the, the, one of the people who was on, we had an oral exam at the end of the general, uh, the written part of it, and the professor who had been telling me the whole two years before that, don't, don't take general seriously. It's like, you did great. I'm so impressed. All the other general exams were terrible. I said, Chuck, that's because everybody took your advice. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I, So I would encourage you to take your general seriously. But with the grain of salt that they are a hurdle, and the sooner you can get them out of the way, the sooner you can really invest all of your energy in your research agenda. Um, so after year two, you know, I passed general exams. Uh, the summer after year two, I read, 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 read. And I just gave myself the whole summer to think and read. And um, kind of very gradually a prospectus grew out of that. So by the time the summer was over, again, all my classmates hated me because they waited until the end of the summer to start working on their prospectus, and I had already done all the reading and all the thinking, and I kind of had something ready to go in the fall. Um, so the your exams were the beginning of your second summer? Uh, yeah, so our exams were after finals our second year. Um, although they, they started giving people the option to take them in the fall of their third year, um, and a lot of people took that option. And I had that option at the time, but I chose to take it, get about the way as soon as I could. Um, so, so yeah, then I can spend the entire summer not thinking about exams, just thinking about if here you guys have to take exams at the start of your third year, right? Yeah, you can take them early, and like one was Kate took early. Kate Dutch, uh -huh. okay, uh, and she did her prospectus early too. Uh, not a coincidence. Um, that's it, you know if, if you're still pre generals uh, or pre qualifiers or whatever they're called. Uh, try to take them early if you can. Um, but it was really important, whenever you start your perspective work, it's really important to give yourself a lot of time to think. Um, you can't overestimate uh, how important it is to really kind of immerse yourself in a topic. Uh, there is such a thing as overreading when you're doing a perspective, and you have to know when to stop. Um, but I'm not sure there's such a thing as overthinking. Well, there is that too, but uh, that's usually not the problem with prospectuses. Uh, <laughs> so like Mark, in year three, I started working on grant proposals. Um, the Political Science NSF grant has a December deadline, so I waited until the fall term of my third year to start working on writing a proposal for that. Like Mark, I got it, um, and like Mark, I used it to collect data. So um, I got the grant, so I, we put in for our grants in December, we find out about them the following June. So then the summer after my third year, um, I spent that summer and all my fourth year managing a small group of RAs who helped me collect this giant data set of information about the bi biographies of members of Congress. Um, during my third year, I also started doing my student teaching. Um, and it's good to do a lot of that, but not too much. So I had the option of only teaching one class uh, or teaching two, but I had to give up fellowship. I had to literally leave money on the table. And I chose to teach two and lose the fellowship money because I thought I wouldn't want to go to a own one I work for a school that didn't care about teaching or that cared so little about teaching 
that they would let me get away with one class I TA'd in my third year. Um, and so, so it's good to start teaching, you know, earlier, I think, if you're going to do TA work and if you aspire to work in, you know, to be a professor long term, get a couple of semesters, get one earlier, third year, fourth year. Um, one third year and one fourth year is what I did. You can't really do them in your fifth year because, like Mark said, the job market is a full-time job. Um, so year four, I did data collection. I presented the first analysis of my work. Uh, I did the other chapters of my dissertation. And then the summer uh, after year four, the, we have a slightly different uh, political science. Our job market is really September, October, November is when it happens. So I just had sort of a push forward version of Mark's schedule. The entire summer was consumed with job market work. Um, and most of the fall was consumed with job market work. Um, I did beat Mark. I had more flyouts than him. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that it's a contest. What is the public policy one? I mean, What's so that? We're, none of us are coming from disciplinary departments, so like, we have to. When's the public? So APAC is in November. Yeah. So it's like it's a fall thing. Yeah. Much. Except except if if there are some positions you want to go for in disciplinary departments, they might say we're yep. not interviewing at APAM. So you might have to go to APSA or ASSA. APSA in August. APSA is always Labor Day weekend, and that's the start of the political science job market. And political science applications are due October, November, and then flyouts happen November, December, and then offers happen kind of around Christmas, uh, New Year's. So. so is that an interview with the conference? Is that what you're saying? So, so in political science, we don't have the, the sort of, like a lot of things, we don't do it quite as efficiently as economists do. Uh, at APSA, we have sort of mini-interviews, which are sort of the speed-dating version of a flyout. Like, it's, it's literally, there's a whole room full of tables, and the job candidate walks up and talks for 15 to 20 minutes. We have that at APSA. Uh, I did a dozen of those. Um, one of them was with the Duke Public Policy Schools with Sarah Bermea, although she didn't have an official table, but we still did the, um, uh, the mini-interview. And then, um, only five flyouts? That's good. No, I got six. <laughs> well, but I turned down three, so. Uh, but who's counting? Um, this is a long way, a silly way, uh, a sort of lighthearted way of saying this will, you know, if you aspire to go into the academic world, the, you have to block off. Don't expect to do any new research for maybe six months, the six months sort of surrounding the job market or whenever that time is in the fields where you want to apply. If you want to apply in multiple fields, and I did, I applied in political science, sociology, and public policy. Um, you have to be sensitive to the different schedules of those disciplines, um, and you may have to go to multiple conferences. Um, but the job market is a lot of fun, actually, if you, if you have a good attitude about it, and if you plan well and well in advance and have all your materials ready. It can be a positive experience, uh, and you, I mean, you get to meet new people. So, you know, these, this, this speed dating thing, I was... I met like 60 political scientists in a day and a half uh, who I'd never met before. And that was, you know, on some level fun, even though it was also exhausting, stressful, you know, still me. Um, like Mark, uh, I, I got the job, finished my dissertation. Unlike Mark, I actually finished my dissertation after I started here. So uh, we moved here last June. I sat in my office and put the finishing touches on the dissertation and sent it off and went back and defended last August uh, after my appointment started, so I was the rank of lecturer in the fall since I did not have a PhD when the fiscal year started. Uh, um, and I think that about covers it. Um, we, are, are, we, are we going to, should I wait to talk about how I managed my first publication, how I thought about getting experience? Um, I don't know. I mean, we have, we 
four minutes, we can do that. Oh, I'll stop talking because I, I, yeah, yeah, I want to hear from Amar, so I'll leave off there. <laughs> no pressure. Um, <laughs> no, I, actually, I do want to keep, I, I want to keep my, my remarks short. I, I do want to make sure that we have a conversation, and I think that probably we can learn a lot more uh, in the context of conversation than, than uh, if I say too much. But um, a couple of things, I think, before uh, I tell you about my, my PhD experience is that, you know, one thing is that uh, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to tell you about my PhD experience without necessarily tying it to uh, uh, the process of getting a job. And the reason why I say that is that um, you're hanging out with a bunch of academics right now, and I think that's awesome. That makes a ton of sense. But we tend to assume that that you, everybody wants our job. Why, why would you want a different job than this job? Like, everybody wants this job. So this is how you go about getting this job. And, uh, and maybe you don't want this job, and I, I think it's tough uh, when you're hanging out with academics and you can't expect anything else from us except for us to expect you to want our job. So, so it's really, really hard to keep your mind open to the possibility that maybe you want to work at the Census Bureau or maybe you want to work for... Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the CBO or, or some nonprofit or who knows what you want to do. And, um, and, and I don't want to constrain you into thinking about the assembly line process by which, by which we get jobs. Um, but if you want to do that assembly line process, you got to think the way that these guys have been talking through because it is a process that requires you to be very, very strategic. Um, but given that I'm going to set aside the very, very strategic from the very beginning uh, uh, stuff, uh, then that, that lets me open the uh, – uh, I, I just want to introduce you to uh, a concept that you know well because you all did well in school uh, because you wouldn't be here otherwise, um, which is that uh, – which is that I don't know about you guys, but certainly for me growing up, the easiest way to get an A was to not think about getting an A. So I do want to encourage you as you come to – I think that this is a great thing, but I do want to encourage you before I tell you about my PhD experience to remember that in many cases the best way, the easiest way to get an A – is to not think about getting an A. Or the easiest way to have your graduate school experience work out is to understand the fact that you're doing right now what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You're just being paid a lot less. <laughs> that's the only difference. But you are doing now what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So if you don't like this, that's a problem. But if you do, then just like it. And just keep doing it. Because this is what you're going to do. You have your job. This is what, this is, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Okay. So um, that said, uh, 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 let me tell you uh, a little bit about my uh, career. So the first two years, my PhD is in economics, and my research tends to focus on, uh, on the economics of health and health-related behavior at individual and uh, household levels, usually in poor countries, but I've got some work that goes on in the United States as well. So, so my PhD, uh, 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 being in a department of economics, my first two years, I spent, especially my first year, I spent doing problem sets. That's what I did. I was a... We, we have a little skit party every January, and, and, and at my first skit party, they, um, they had a, a, a little skit where a guy went home to his wife, and his wife said, you have turned into a monkey. We put a problem set in the front of the monkey, and then the solution comes out the other side of the monkey or something like that. And that's basically what I was. I was a great big problem set solving machine. You just fed them in, fed, you know, feed, the, feed the problem set in one side, and the answers come out the other side, and that's all I did. And I did a ton of it, and... I loved every second in Southern California, but I'm remembering, uh, I was at UCLA, and I'm remembering that there was some point during my first year uh, uh, where I thought that I wanted to transfer, because there was this big game uh, that my professors played, which was hide the ball. 
And my game was keep your eye on the ball, right? I mean, it was really, like, I felt like, oh, in class, it was like, what am I supposed to be learning here? It was actually like a challenge. And I only tell you that because, um, because I want you to know that uh, being dissatisfied uh, with your experience early on in the process is pretty common, and it's kind of universal. And it's not usually the school's fault. It's usually just how things go. It's like being homesick when you go on a trip. It happens a lot. It's not that that doesn't mean the place where you are is a bad place. It means you just have to ride it out and just get to the other side. So, so anyway, I wanted to make sure that that that, that I told you that. But so, uh, so, so I took uh, uh, I took my comps at the end of my first year, and actually my second year was a lot like like the first uh, in the sense that I did a whole lot of homework. But but there was more that where I started to think creatively about stuff that I found interesting that was about research that was about you know. Um, and, and so it was a, 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 the beginning of a general transition, but it was really the end of the second year. Everything stopped, and 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 a new world began. And that was that for the first two years, basically of my graduate school, people gave me problems and I solved them. And that was my job, and it was a job that I knew really, really well because I'd done it all my life. I had been either a student or an employee my entire life. Somebody gave me a problem, I solved the problem and handed it back, and then I was graded and told whether or not I did a good job. And then. Starting in my third year, everything changed because then it's my job to make up a problem. Convince someone else that the answer is interesting and then tell them the answer. And that is like a completely different job. That is not, if you are good in your first two years, that does not mean you're going to be good after that. And if you are bad in your first two years, that does not mean you're going to be bad after that. And it's a completely different mind frame. It's a completely different way of thinking. And that's what you're going to do. That's when your job starts. Your job starts the day after you pass your qualifiers. And then you have to start thinking creatively about how do I come up with a problem, convince someone else that this problem is interesting, and then solve it and convince them that I solved it the right way. Like that's... And, and, and everything you've done up to then is preparation for that, but, but that's your job. Like, that's when it starts. And then once you've done that, that's what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. Presumably. Because why would you get this degree if you're not going to do that for the rest of your life? It doesn't mean you're going to do it in an academic job, but it means that that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So, so for me, the summer between my second year and third year was really, really great. Because what I did was, uh, I, I didn't do as much reading, and I really wish I'd done more. Uh, 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 I didn't do as much reading as my colleagues here. But I did get a job in which, uh, in which I started to work uh, for, uh, for uh, the guy who ended up being my advisor, who was doing a ton of field work. And one of the things that, one of the things that was really great about it was that I plugged in, and uh, uh, Nick knows the team that I plugged in with. They were amazing. The other students in that team were amazing. And we got to lunch every day. And we talk about ideas, and we just talk about ideas. And sometimes we talk about like, oh, I'm working on this paper and this thing, like, and it's not working and something. And then you have 94 ideas that would come from around the table. And it, this was just like this wasn't like some pressure-packed like planned lunch. This was just like we go to lunch, and it's just because if you tie in with a bunch of smart people, like that's what happens. And that happened for me by accident, but that really changed everything. Um, uh, that process actually then led to me being involved with fieldwork that wasn't of my own design, but was of that, that in which I uh, uh, helped to manage a field project that, uh, that, that somebody who had several <coughs> decades more experience than I did had put together. And so in the process, I learned kind of, oh, here's some stuff that I've discovered, which is that, like, you know, you can minimize typos on a survey by, if you already know stuff, like, about whoever it is that you're interviewing, put the stuff that you already know on the paper that the, that the interviewer is going to have in front of them. So that that way, they don't have to write the name over again. If you know their name, type the name on the form so that when the guy goes, all he's got to do is scratch it out and, type, and write in a new name if it's a mistake. You know, but like have mechanisms for... These are like little little tricks. You wouldn't think 
I wouldn't have thought of this before. But so by, by tying in with somebody who was already doing field work, I learned a ton about how field work, and it was a way to kind of leapfrog forward. Um, um, the, uh, there, I can't under, uh, understate almost no matter what you want to do, but um, but especially if you want to do academic work, I can't understate the value of field work. Um, it's it's a really really good thing to get involved in. Um, I also made a point of TAing as often as I could. Uh, uh, TA jobs were actually in very high demand uh, uh, at UCLA, and I think part of it is because uh, they pay better than RA jobs, maybe, uh, or maybe it's because other people were as idealistic as I was, which was a you want to know how to teach because you want to know how to teach. But B, even if you don't ever intend to be an academic, standing in front of a room of 20 people who don't necessarily want to be there and finding a way to get through that 20 minutes, uh, so getting through that hour in front of those 20 people is going to make you better at presenting to large groups of people. It's going to get you over any anxieties you have about talking. It's going to get you over the need to get positive feedback from your audience while you're going. You know, it's going to get you over all of that. You're just going to just <laughs> believe me. Especially, by the way, it's not as bad at Duke, but at a public school, TA, and then you'll learn, like, oh, I know. Like, I don't, I just need three people to be paying attention. And in every public school, there's two people paying attention. And then the rest of them, eh, you're not going to get any positive feedback from them, but you can still get a sense of whether you've, you're at least getting through a little bit. And that's actually a very, very useful way to present. It's a very useful way to learn how to present um, in the future. One thing I will say about what happened after I graduated uh, uh, was that uh, was that I did a postdoc, and I really recommend that you consider that as a possibility. And it's not very common in the social sciences, um, and I don't know why not. Because one thing that happened, I learned a ton. I learned a lot about myself and what it is that I find interesting. I learned a lot about. I didn't think I ever wanted to do research that involved data from the United States because I thought I didn't care about Americans. And then I got this postdoc, and I kind of started talking to people and realized, mm, that's not exactly true. I, I actually, so now I have a, 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 several of my open lines, of, uh, several of my open projects are, are based on stuff that I discovered about myself or about the world or, or about science in the postdoc. And then the other thing is that it gave me an opportunity to kind of be a little bit more exploratory during graduate school. Because, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't have to be quite as strategic, you know, solving backwards um, because of the fact that, you know, a postdoc kind of gives you a little bit more flexibility. Then you got to be strategic after you graduate. You have to be a strategic before you graduate. So it gives you a chance to kind of open up and learn a little bit and stuff like that. So it's an idea worth exploring. It's, you know, you're taking a salary cut and stuff, so it's something to think about. But, but, it's, but it definitely, for me, was worth it. I wouldn't, that is something that I would do. If they gave me 10,000 parallel universes, I would do this in all 10,000 parallel universes. Okay, but I do want to make sure there's time for a conversation. I, sorry, I didn't mean to go on that one, so... So I have a question. So we've sort of uh, mapped out like a year-by-year -year strategy, and I think that's, that's great. And I, so I'm just trying to focus this down to like a week. Like if I look at a general week, how should I best spend my time during the week as far as like spending time being an RA, doing my own idea, thinking and reading, uh, and then maybe during the school year doing classwork, and how does that sort of balance, how does that weighted balance sort of transition across the years? How does that change? So what I would recommend is actually um, the use of deliverables as a good anchor. So the beautiful thing about the first year, what why people hate and love, hate while they're doing it and love in retrospect the first year of graduate school, is that your deliverables are just known. They're given to you. And when you deliver them, you're done. And then you take a vacation, and it's awesome. 
then, uh, then you get an RA job, and then you have deliverables because you're being asked to do something. So, like, that's very useful. But, but I think in the end, what you want to do is you want to crossfade. Obviously, during your first year, you have no deliverables that are of your own design. None. Other people are telling you what to deliver and when to deliver them. Your second year, you have a little bit more that's of your own design, but, uh, but a whole lot more that's either your employer or your teacher. Your third year, it's all either your employer or you. And then after that, it's got to be all about you. That's kind of how I'd recommend it. And it's, and it's really about the deliverable within the week. So you know by Friday, if I haven't got this done, if I have not delivered this object to myself or someone else, then, uh, then, the, then I'm behind that week. Then I have to work over the weekend. Or then I have to do this. Or then something has to happen. And just keep like the deliverables. The only thing that changes is the ownership of the deliverables. Who's designing them right? and who you have to deliver them to. I don't know if you guys are sure. Yeah, I would say it's difficult. It's a, you're asking a difficult question because there's necessarily whatever average treatment effect I give you is going to be is is not going to be true at any time to the PhD, right? So let me just let's forget the first year. Amar talked about the first year, and and, um, and let's take a kind of a, a representative year when you do research and when you don't have to be in class all the time. Treat this as a full time job. So show up at nine. And by five o'clock, you should be done with whatever it is you're doing. Because this is the last... So, of course, this is under the assumption that you're interested in getting a faculty position. But this is really the, the last time in your life where, if you become an academic, you will be able to treat something like a 40-hour-a-week job. Because once you become a you know, faculty somewhere, it's no longer a 40-hour-a-week job. You have to think about stuff all the time and you know, respond to email at 9 p.m. at night or something like that. Uh, and work on weekends. Why? So, well, yeah, I, I think I disagree. Why? I, I think that varies. I, I think that varies. Yeah, okay. I've got a, I've got a three okay. goals, so well, we I can we can pick that up afterwards. But yeah, show up at nine o'clock and, that part and work, work till five, <laughs> and that that is already a lot more than a lot of, of average uh, graduate students are doing. Yeah, there are so many people who are slacking off in grad school right. that if you do just that, you're going to be successful. There are people who do, they come in at 8, they leave at 8 p.m., but they're on Facebook 90% of the time while yeah. they're here. Uh, you know, I actually, when I was in graduate school, because I had, when my son was born during my third year, you know, I had to really bracket my work time. So from 9 to 5, it was work, and nothing but work. And then after 5, it was, you know, diapers, and nothing but diapers. <laughs> and RAing and TAing takes, usually by, con, by, by design, you can't do more than 15, 20 hours a week of that, right? So once, and I would say, don't spend more time than that, right? Yeah. Spend just about enough time to do a good job so you get good recommendations from whoever you're working for. Because when you go on the market, you're going to need at least three letters. Yeah. Uh, and you want someone who knows how good of a, a teacher you are. And you want, of course, people who can attest that you are a good researcher. Don't oversleep and blow off your meetings, John. <laughs> <laughs> and so... It'll never happen. But, but, but once you're done teaching at one section you're teaching, and once you're done grading for the week, or, or pre prepping for lecture or, or section, you've got a lot of time. And I would say anything that is not dedicated to RAing or TAing or various meetings, fill that time with working on your own research. And I was extremely fortunate because um, we didn't have Wi-Fi when I was in graduate school. I think Wi-Fi began when I went in, in my fourth or fifth year, and I didn't have a Wi-Fi card on my computer. It was very simple to turn off the internet. Right? I would just pull the plug on it. Uh, now I have freedom on my computer, just so I can turn off the internet when I, when I don't want the distraction and to write. Uh, and I would strongly advise you guys to get to spend the ten dollars to get freedom if you don't already have it, because that allows you to dedicate blocks of time to saying, okay, for the next. 
180 minutes. I'm just writing. And I do think there, I mean, you got to know yourself, but, you know, I had, I had a friend who told me once that, um, that in order to start something, she had to convince herself, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this for 45 seconds. 45, I'm going to write, I'm just going to do nothing but write a program for 45 seconds, right? Which turned into four and a half hours because that's just, but it's that, for her, it was that first 45 seconds, right? So everybody has their own little trick for how this works, right? But the way that you know whether or not it's working, I do think structure is, I, I, I don't know, I mean, people are like, oh no, I mean, I'm a free spirit. Like, there, there's a guy out there who's a free spirit, but just about everybody needs structure. So you've got to come to work in the morning. I mean, that was the great thing about getting tied in with the team was that, was that we all came to work in the morning. We had a room where we worked. You would show up. Yeah, you don't have that. Like, I, yeah, I, no, I feel like totally a different um, you mean experience here. Because like, you guys have cubicles? And because we have cubicles and also because like, we, I mean, so I just compare my experience, my boyfriend's experience as a scientist piece, you see? And like, that is everyone's yeah. experience as a chemical engineer. You can produce that. Yeah, I was say. No, we were blessed. We were blessed. Like, I and my colleagues were blessed. But you know what? You can construct that. You can construct that by taking a handful of the people whom you know well and and whom you uh, with whom you uh, tend to work well, and just make a pact, just make a commitment that what you guys are going to do is show up. You're going to take lunch together. You're going to have. You're going to work at the same time. You're going to be part of a team. You know where you sort of contribute to these kinds of things. And so, I mean, I think that that's something that. Yeah, it's not necessarily because you know for the rest of your life you the reason why you took this this thing was because for the rest of your life you want to talk to people who don't do what you do. And you want to not use jargon, and you want to get points across. Like that's why you took that this this gig. So so given that, if you're hanging out with a bunch of people who are in a different track than you, and you want to describe a problem that you're having, that's actually a worthwhile undertaking. And the fact is, everybody has something that they can bring to the table. So um, so 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think that there's a lot of ways that you can create structure. I think structure is is pretty much a universal uh, uh, recommendation. For me, deliverables have been absolutely critical because, you know, I had the capacity, I did not realize this really till my fourth year, that I had the capacity to come to work at 7 a.m., leave at 11 p.m. I did this routinely. So, you know, you're there for, what is that, 16 hours. You're there for 16 hours. I'm not on Facebook. Facebook didn't exist, or if it did, I didn't know about it. But, like, I was not, like, sitting here surfing the Internet. I somehow or other was putting in 16 hours. I'm exhausted at the end of it. And then I look back, and I had wasted most of that time. And the main reason why I had wasted most of that time is because I was solving problems that didn't really matter, that I could have just skipped. But then, other, you know, you just get bogged down. And, and for me, the way to get focus and see through the, the, the trees and get to the end was deliverables. That was for me. For, but different people are different. You've got to figure out, like, what is your thing that's going to keep you on track and uh, without being – right? and yet at the same time, even while I still want to keep you in mind of the fact that being too strategic – takes all the love out of what you do, and that, that's not a good thing either. But you want to be on track. You want to be doing real work, real research, discovery, what you came here to do. You know, you want to do that. And so, so different people are different, I think, in this regard. But, but I think uh, 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 treat it like a real job, absolutely. And then maybe the first 45-second trick, the deliverable trick. You got, but, you know, a lot of those first couple of years are just are, are exploration, learning about yourself, figuring out, like, what is it that I need? I have one good trick that I can Yeah, please. Yeah. For 30 seconds. Uh, I spend the first hour of every day writing. Uh, grants, papers, anything. Just write it. Yes. Some ominous stuff. That is actually really good. I did, I did, uh, uh, I did hear from someone who, uh, 
uh, believes very much that you should never respond to anything in the first hour or two of the day. You right. should, they should all be stuff. The first hour or two of the day should all be stuff that, that, that is about you, not about somebody sends you an email and you answer them. No, it's about you. You write a page a day, that's 10 articles a year. Uh, not kidding. Uh, most director writers are the people who write every day for a fixed amount of time. Um, yeah, I, I, sorry. I, yeah. Um, I said earlier, show up at 9 o'clock, right? But my strategy was always to show up at 7, like you say. Work two hours before people come in, and then they start, they, they, they say, oh, let's go for coffee. Or they want to start talking about their own stuff, which is, you know, it's fine. I mean, there needs to be a social life, but... Uh, yeah, the first, I'm a morning person, and I think you guys are as well, but yeah. now I do it at home. I used to get here at 7.15 in the morning, and I would get so much done before everybody else was it. Uh, oh, also, Amara talks of deliverables. My trick has always been to have to-do lists on scratch pads, and there's something incredibly zen about crossing off stuff on to-do lists. Uh, and, and this job is a never-ending to-do list, really. There's always some grading or some manuscript to referee your or you know, your own stuff to work on. Anyway, sorry. Oh, yeah. um, my question was going to be, so kind of in the narrowing down a dissertation topic phase, um, we're kind of doing a lot of reading, you know, we may have some theoretical ideas, some empirical ideas, we're looking at data. Kind of how do you go from all of those inputs to really figuring out what's going to work best for you? I mean, I know it's... <laughs> it's I mean, it's got to be something you really care about at the intrinsic level, because writing a dissertation is hard and unpleasant. And at some point, the hard and unpleasant part of it will totally overwhelm your short-term thinking. You'll hate the project, it will seem like it's too much. And during those times, you need some intrinsic personal connection to the project to push you through. So, I mean, I've hated my dissertation, now my book, many times. As recently as Monday, when I had to learn Python, which is this old computer program, to get a new data set, I hated the project. <laughs> What's that? A lot of people use Python. Python was made in the 80s, and it should have stayed there. Um, but but that, that's the thing, is I care about my research for reasons that are sort of over and above the professional incentives. Uh, and that's the number one thing. Uh, a piece of advice I got from Tita Scotchpool, who was Kristen Goss's advisor, who was like huge in political science, uh, is it has to be something that makes you, it makes you mad that no one's done it before. It has to kind of kind of piss you off a little bit. That's that's all. Relatedly, it doesn't need to be the way he describes. I was never tired of my dissertation, uh, but that I think it's, I think it's because I would just kind of leave it aside for a couple of days every once in a while and say. I'm tired of this for now, and just get back to it. And I also didn't turn it into a book, right? And it was three different chapters. Yeah, but even but, with articles, I always yeah. get to a point where I hate it. But maybe that's just me being kind of... But, but one thing that I would concur with is that, uh, is that for me, I, I wrote obviously three articles because nobody writes a book in economics, and, um, and, uh, but every one of them was on something that I could have gotten in a shouting match over. Like, I care yes. about a lot. And, and if somebody took a different position, I could get very emotional about it. And that told me that I'm really into it, like the, yeah. that these are topics I'm really into. Um, but uh, uh, I think that the first paper, I don't know, I mean, I, I think, again, this may vary from person to person, but I do think the first paper, uh, the most important thing to do is just do it. Like that's, so the first paper is probably something small. It seems provincial. It seems kind of silly. Like you, I read all these important papers in some journal somewhere, and, and gosh, this doesn't seem anything like this. Just go. Just go. Just write it. Just go. And so uh, I think the way to do that is you, know, you, you do a bunch of reading. You find something interesting. You imagine what are the tables that would go at the back of this paper? Like what are the tables that I need? And then start making the tables. And if you get all the way to table seven and you've got them all made, 
Write the paper. And, and then in the end, if it's something stupid, it doesn't matter. You've written your first paper and like, just go. And then the second one is like a little bit like it's not it's quite as, you know, whatever. Like, you know, forbidding. So I have a follow-up question. Oh, go ahead. Nick said, you know, write on something that it, that it upsets you, that it has not yet been done. But also trust your instincts, right? Because eventually you're going to be working on something and say, I can't believe no one's ever looked at this before. And trust me, when you get to that moment, it's pretty magical. Because that's the moment where you realize that you're working on, on an original piece of research. And if you can't believe that it's, been, that it, that it's, that it's not been done before, write that stuff up. Right? Because that's, what, that's how you convince a reader that this is really... Amar was saying, you, know, you, learn, you have to learn an entire, entirely different skill set in year three when you have to write papers. And one of those skills is how to sell an idea to someone. And why this really matters. And why you should... Why anyone should spend 45 minutes reading with you. That's the skill, I think, is the framing or motivating a paper because there's so much worthwhile research that could be done is floating around. Uh, as I said in our class, Marina, if you were to read just the title of every book that's ever been written, it would take 15 years. Uh, there's so much information out there. That really, the skill you need in this line of work or in any line of work where you're producing knowledge is the ability to get other people to care about that little sliver of the world that you study. That's, I think, that's the thing that changed for me when I started shifting from being a student Nick to being uh, whatever I am now, professor Nick. I, I went into academia because I didn't want to go and sit like my dad was. And I wasn't for a big surprise when I was told, you know, you actually need to sell your ideas to be on Yeah, yeah, but it's a different kind of selling, I think. Yeah, it is. I'm not sure that it is. Uh, <laughs> but more broadly, the question of how do you, how do you, cross that line from reading literature to developing an original research idea, I think that should be a topic for a separate kind of brown yeah. because that is we such a difficult the end of our time. I, I don't want this to ever end, but I think you guys probably have other stuff to do. So. Yeah, thank you so <laughs> thank much. You so thank much. you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you.